It is at this time we would invite our children to head out to Children's Church. We have both nursery and children for uh, ages from birth all the way up through second grade. So if you've got one that fits into that age group and you'd like to send them either to nursery or to Children's Church, they are heading that way now. Um, Of course, they are welcome in our service as well. For the rest of you, we are going to be starting a a new book in Scripture, uh, and we're going to do that through the month of November. Um, You know, during Christmas time, we like to kind of focus on the Gospels and the things that kind of prepare our hearts and minds for the birth of Jesus. And so that leaves us in kind of an interesting spot where where we have about three weeks to, to get into something. And we've been kind of doing different stuff, and we've kind of been all over the place for for a, a couple of, really a couple of months by now because of the mission trip and because of kind of it being the beginning of our admin calendar, which most of you probably didn't even know, but I know these things because it's my job. Um, but one of the things that we like to do in this church, and those of you that have been with us for a long time know this, is we like to get into books of the Bible and really kind of expose ourselves to entire books of the Bible so that we don't just know different verses here and there about certain topics, but we know our actual Bible. Well, when you have three weeks and you're wanting to get into something, it kind of, you know, starts to limit what we can do. And as I was praying about that, this, and we've spent a lot of time in the New Testament, and I said, Lord, you know, I, I would love for us to get into the Old Testament and be able to really get into something for the next three weeks. And, and I have been pouring over what is called the minor prophets. And in the minor prophets are not the minor prophets because they could not hit a 90-degree fastball, 90-mile-per-hour fastball. A 90-degree fastball would be very hot and... Uh, might be weird, a 90-mile-per-hour 90, 90 fastball, but it's because they wrote smaller books. And as I was praying over that and reading through that, I landed on the prophet Zephaniah. Now, the reason I tell you all of this is because if you are not used to getting into one of the minor prophets, you may think that the pastor here has gone crazy because Zephaniah has very strong words at a, on a very particular topic at a very particular time in the history of Israel. We're going to talk about all of that. But I would encourage you, bear with me, because we are going to see some amazing, amazing things in the prophet Zephaniah that you probably have not been exposed to before. So having said all that, we are going to begin in the prophet Zephaniah. Now, Zephaniah is one of the minor prophets, which means it is after the books like uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and Daniel, but it's going to be before the end of the Old Testament, so before Malachi or Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And so turn with me to Zephaniah, and we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to read the first 13 verses of Zephaniah. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. And the word of God says this, it says, The word of the Lord, which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, I'll get there, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. So I will stretch out my hand against Judah 
and against all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the names of all of the idolatrous priests along with the priests and those who bow down on the housetops to the host of heaven and those who who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom and those who have turned back their back from following the Lord and those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him be silent before the Lord God for the day of the Lord is near for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice he has consecrated his guests then it will come about on the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes the king's sons all who clothe themselves with foreign garments and I will punish on that day all who leap on the temple threshold who fill the house of the of the Lord with violence and deceit on that day declares the Lord there will be the sound of a cry from the fish gate a wail from the second quarter and a loud crash from the hills wail o inhabitants of the mortar for all the people of Canaan will be silenced all who weigh out silver will be cut off it will come about at that time that i will search jerusalem with lamps and i will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit who say in their hearts the lord will not do good or evil Moreover their wealth will become plunder and their houses desolate. Yes, they will build houses but not inhabit them and plant vineyards but not drink their wine. Please be seated. As I read the passage this morning, I was reminded of something that that I always seem to hear around this time of year and 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 I was thinking uh primarily of of watching football. I love college football. You've seen that by some of my poor behavior this year already. Um I love college football. I've I've really gotten into the NFL. Um me and and my son have really started to enjoy watching the NFL and my wife is actually the worst one. You may not think that, but my wife is probably the biggest NFL fan in our house for some strange reason. She likes the Kansas City Chiefs, which I kind of get that's from back home. But then she likes the San Francisco 49ers and that makes me want to vomit. Yeah, good boo. Good boo. The other day, if you want to get really offensive, the other day my son turned to me and he goes, "Dad, I'm going to cheer for the Cowboys because <laughs> And the reason was he goes because they're winning right now. It didn't last. Um but a lot of times when we when we are are watching football and we kind of get the the conversation and and they're interviewing the coaches and the people um you know before and after the game and you hear a lot of times the same stuff right they're saying the same things not that uh but i one of the things that 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 kind of jumped out as i was reading this was i remember hearing those kind of college football coach, coaches and their pre-game interview saying something like we want to get out there and we want to set the tone for the game have you ever heard any a coach say that or or anybody say that i personally have a very clear memory of playing football as a high schooler and and my football coach kind of telling us as as we were preparing for for the the next game in, in one particular week I don't remember who we were playing and he was kind of getting us ready and he says he says here's what we're going to do when we get to the coin toss if we win the coin toss we want the ball 
and you tell that ref, we want the ball, and we want the ball because we want to set the tone for the game. And we want to, on that opening drive, let them know exactly who they came to play. When we talk about setting the tone, what we are saying is we want whoever it is that we're addressing, whoever it is that we're dealing with, whether it's the opposing team or employees or even your family, we want them to know what they're getting into, what is about to happen, what kind of conversation is about to take place. And in our passage today, the Lord God is setting the tone for this prophetic writing. And he is not necessarily a coach trying to motivate a team to victory, but he is most certainly letting the nation of Israel, specifically the southern kingdom of Judah, understand what kind of word he has for them today. If there was any confusion as to whether this was going to be a word of praise or words of judgment from the prophet, their question was quickly answered in these beginning verses. Now as we look to the opening of Zephaniah, we we need to understand a little bit about what is going on here. First off, in verse 1, we are introduced to the prophet and the author of this book, which is Zephaniah. He gives us his uh, genealogy. He says that Zephaniah is the son of, of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah. Now, you may even notice by the very next person that gets mentioned, it is very unusual for someone to go all the way back to their great-great-grandpa to tell you uh, who, they, who their family is. Now, here in Kentucky, that may not be that surprising. Because, you know, we have, we, family's a big deal around here, and I've heard many times, whose boy are you? Or whose kin are you? Or, or are you related to the, the so-and-sos that live over in the holler over there? And you may go, and I'm sure some of you have done that, got, met somebody and gotten all the way to great-grandparents and realized you were related. And said, hopefully you weren't dating that person when you found that out. Amen. <laughs> I've got a story to tell, but since we record this, I'm going to keep it to myself. Um, but, that's, but there's a reason why Zephaniah does that. And if you want to know the reason, it's because the last name is significant. And Hezekiah is more than likely, even though he doesn't specifically mention it here, Hezekiah was more than likely King Hezekiah from Judah's history. And so what this tells us is that Zephaniah was actually a part of the Jewish aristocracy. His great-great-grandfather, king of Judah, and that would mean that the, the next person mentioned, that Josiah, who, who is the king, that, Jos- that Hezekiah's great-great-grandfather, or excuse me, that, that Zephaniah's great-great-grandfather was Hezekiah, and Josiah's great-grandfather was Hezekiah. There is a relationship here. They would have been second or third cousins once removed. Now, Josiah, by contrast, his is a little bit different. Josiah was king of the, the, the southern kingdom, the, the kingdom of Judah. It mentions his father, Ammon. Josiah was one of the few good kings of Judah. 
In fact, you can go over to Second Chronicles and a few other places and, and, and you will see that he had reforms that included purging the temple of pagan worship, the removal of idols and Asherah poles all throughout Jerusalem and even beyond, and even the reinstatement of the Passover meal. In fact, they say in, in Second Chronicles that, that he reinstituted the Passover and it had been the first time in generations that the entire nation of Judah had celebrated the Passover. However, what we're going to see from our text and from what we already have read from Zechariah, these reforms had likely not taken place yet. But in fact, what would probably be clear from our passage is the fact that it says that during the reign of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king, and it gives that kingly statement to Ammon and not to Josiah, what has probably happened is Ammon has passed away And Josiah is officially king, but he has not done anything yet. Um, Or excuse me, Josiah actually becomes king when he's about eight years old. And because of that, there was probably a lengthy period of time, at least a few years, before he really started doing anything kingly and probably was kind of the king uh, of Judah, but it was being more held in trust and other people were, were managing the nation in his place. This Ammon king that is mentioned, we can go back to Second Kings or Second Chronicles and we will learn that he was a wicked, wicked man. And not only was Ammon a wicked, wicked man, but so was Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh. This means that Judah had been, been involved in almost 60 years of idolatry and syncretism by the time that Zechariah begins to prophesy. Now, as we get into this context, we begin to see why God needs to grab their attention. The Lord began his proclamation with these these words. He said, I will remove all things. And I believe that there is a reason why he says this. Not only is because that is an intention-grabbing statement, and when you have something that begins with, I will remove everything, I will remove all things, that you're going to be like, whoa. You know, it's kind of that thing when you're a parent, and when you walk into your child's room and you see the mess, and you say, I will throw all of this away if this is not cleaned up in whatever time you give. We can relate to that, Amen. See, if you remember, the kingdom of Judah had had fallen hard into idolatry. The kingdom of Judah was a total mess. And the the thing about this idolatry is it had had really brought in this idea of of syncretism. And if you don't know what that means is, what what Judah had started doing, see, Judah had Jerusalem and had the temple, temple, but what they had started doing is they just started bringing in all of this other worship, all of this idolatry, all of this pagan worship, and they had just started mixing it in with their Jewish traditions and their Jewish things. Because of this, now the temple was a place where you could worship Yahweh and you could offer sacrifices to Yahweh, but you could also worship Asherah or you could also worship Baal and you could go and fall down before an idol and then go and offer a sacrifice on the altar. 
In Judah at this time, they were, they were quite literally worshiping everything. And not only in Jerusalem, but throughout the nation of Judah, you could find everything. Baal, Asherah, uh, Milcom is what it says in, in my translation. You could also understand that from the Old Testament, the, the god Molech, which was one of them. And it talks about it, one of them where you would, you would burn your children. This is awful stuff. They were worshiping the, the stars and the sun and, and all sorts of things. Everything was fair game. And whatever you needed at that moment may dictate who you go to. But God's declaration at the beginning of this writing sets a reminder to them and really sets the tone that Yahweh alone is God. And all that exists, exists according to his good will. The people of Judah were worshiping the stars instead of the one who put the stars in the sky. The people of Judah were worshiping idols of gold and silver and wood and not worshiping the God who said, let there be these things. And just like a father who says, I have brought you into this world and I can take you out of this world, God is reminding the nation of Judah that all that they see and all that they worship can be removed by God. I thought it interesting in our passage that he, he mentions the, the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and all those things. And if we go back to Exodus 20, chapter, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, he says, Do not worship things in the image of man or birds in the sky or things in the sea. The declaration that he can remove all things and then begins to list them should be a reminder of what their great, great, great grandfather David had said in Psalm 24. In Psalm 24, 1, he says, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. The Lord is declaring the magnitude of his power and his authority but then he begins to focus it all in on Judah. Look again at uh, chapter, or excuse me, verse four. And he says, so I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. See, the tone is being sent, and now the recipient of the prophecy is made clear that the God of all creation who made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, the one who had made a special covenant with Israel and specifically with, with David and with Solomon, he is coming in judgment towards Judah. This begs the question, why? And God answers that question. It's because they had forgotten just who they were dealing with. See, under the reign of Josiah's father and grandfather, the nation of Judah had wandered so far from God. In fact, 2 Chronicles 33.9, I think, describes it well. And it's talking about the, the reign of King Manasseh. And he says this, he says, Thus Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations when the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. 
Think about this for just a second, what, what, what the, the writer of the Chronicles is saying and what God is communicating in this passage is by the time Manasseh had taken over in Judah and he had, he had really instituted all of his policies and, and, and had it where he wanted it, that the nation of Israel was more wicked than the Canaanites that God had driven out before the Israelites in judgment. Look again at how they treated the Lord God. Picking back up in verse 5, it says this. He says, And those who bow down on the housetops to do to the host of heaven, to those who bow down and swear to the Lord, yet also swear by Milcom, to those who have turned back from following the Lord, and those who have not sought the Lord's or acquired of him. See, the idea here is that they are turning away from God and showed a tremendous amount of disrespect towards God along with a desire to continue a course because they do not fear Him. Basically, the the nation of Judah and and indeed the people living in Jerusalem had, had come to a place to, to where, where it didn't matter what God said, they were going to do what they wanted to do. And if God didn't tell them what they wanted to, what they wanted to hear, then they could just go to another God. What, is, what, is the, the, what does Deuteronomy say? What does the law say? The law says I can't do that, but I want to do that. What does your God say? Does your God say I can do that? Oh, your God says I can do that? Okay, I'm going to do that. And God is saying, that is enough. In fact, the astute Israelite of the day would have called to mind the words that, that God has spoken to Pharaoh and, and really, more specifically, the very things that Pharaoh had said to God. In Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, we read this. It says, But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And besides, I will not let Israel go. It is a scary thing to think that Israel had come to a place, and in Judah specifically, had come to a place where they more represented the Canaanites that God had driven out from the promised land and had more of the attitude of Pharaoh than they ever did of Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon. And yet that's where we find the kingdom of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, in the days of Zephaniah. And just like Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, Judah is about to be told the full measure of God's power. Verse 7 begins with this. He says, Be silent before the Lord God. This was an interesting thing, and I didn't know this, so I have to, have to tell you that this to you. This was what the, the priest would say before offering the sacrifice. If you had come in and you were offering a sacrifice and you were getting ready to, to do that, and whether it was for an atonement of sin or a, or a free will offering, when the sacrifice was about to take place, the priest that was offering the sacrifice would announce to be silent. It meant that the sacrifice was about to be given. And this sacrifice is intimately tied to what we see in the passage as the prophetic day of the Lord. Zechariah wasn't the first person to talk about the day of the Lord. We can actually go back to Isaiah to learn about that. Isaiah 13, 9 says this, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel 
with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. Well, the land of Judah may have thought that this day of the Lord was going to be bad for other people, but, but Zephaniah was begin to, going to make it clear that in reality, this day of the Lord and the sinners that he is sp- speaking of were actually the very people in Jerusalem and Judah. Zechariah presents the day of the Lord as a day of sacrifice. The sacrifice is prepared and the guests are consecrated, but there is a reversal of sorts. Usually for the sacrifice, the guests would be the kings and the princes and those who came to partake in the sacrifice and then enjoy the the meat and the celebration afterwards. However, in the sacrifice that Zephaniah speaks of, the kings and the princes were not the guests. They were the sacrifice. Why? Because they had abandoned the covenant that God had made with Israel. That they had gone after other gods and turned their back on the one true God. Even the statement in our passage today that says that they had foreign clothes was symbolic of the worship of other deities and the fact that Judah had abandoned their covenant relationship. Now remember, Josiah is king and likely still a boy. It is fascinating when we think about this that Zephaniah is warning these princes, these sons of the king, of what will happen to them. And indeed, if Josiah is hearing the words of of Zephaniah as a young man or a young lad, not quite to the point where he is making the reforms that we know history says that he made, this was very much so a warning for him. You are going a path. This path has been taught to you by your father and your grandfather you can still make a change. Now that's something that we can probably take hold of today. Sometimes when we look at the the sin and and even the sinful thought processes that that we have in in our life and the things that we do and and the the sinful ways that we think, and we can immediately point back to a a, a parent or a grandparent or a great-grandparent, and we can see that, that, that curse of sin being visited down from the great-grandfather to the grandfather to the father to the son. And there's, part, and there's times where we see that way and we think, well, that's just, that's just who I am. That's just, that's just how I was raised. That's just how I think. Zephaniah doesn't buy that. And he's laying out this warning to Josiah, and he's saying, listen, The day of the Lord is at hand. It is here. And when the day of the Lord comes, it will be the princes, you, who will be the sacrifice. But he still leaves open an opportunity for change. And indeed, we can look to the future. We can go back to 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles and see Josiah made those changes. You are not your father or your mother. You are not your grandparents. You are not your great-grandparents. You are not beyond repentance. You are not beyond salvation. This warning was 
I think very much so leveled at Josiah, and yet this warning also goes beyond Josiah to all the priests, all the, uh, the aristocracy. In fact, even, indeed, all of Jerusalem and all of Judah who would approach the Lord without reverence and fear. I think this is really where it begins to land in our world today, especially as we look at the last part of the passage. Look again at verses 12 and 13. The Lord God says, It will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good or evil. Moreover, their wealth will become plunder and their houses desolate. Yes, they will build houses that they will not inhabit and plant vineyards that they will not drink the wine. Notice those who God is looking for. And as he seeks out, he is looking for those who are stagnant in spirit and who are indifferent towards the Lord. We have to remember that prophecies like this are most certainly set in a particular time and a particular place, but they also go far beyond, in fact, dealing with all of creation throughout history, all the way until the Lord returns. First, the Lord is addressing the indifference and the idolatry and the syncretism in the days of Josiah. He is warning the people that their indifference towards God, that their, their, their thought process, that the God, that God of Israel will not do right or wrong, that he is indifferent to their ideas, that God is not concerned with their behavior. He is telling them that they are wrong and they need to repent. But also the day of the Lord is for all of creation throughout time, including today. See, we in this room cannot be indifferent nor place our faith in Jesus among other things. And that's really the, the warning, and that's really the, the wake-up call for us today. And that's why something like the prophet Zephaniah is relevant to us today. Because it is so tempting for us to become indifferent towards the things of God. I've got other things that are more pressing. You may, you may say, I'll worry about that Jesus stuff later. But for right now, I've got, to, I've got to put food on the table, I've got bills to pay, I've got to work, and I've got to work overtime, and I've got to deal with all that stuff. Or you may say, listen, I'm still perfectly healthy, i got years to live, I'm not worried about heaven right now, I, I just got other stuff I need to focus on right now. Or you say, you know what, I've known church people that were not very nice. And just the other day, some guy cut me off and honked his horn and gave me the one-fingered salute. When he drove past me, he had a little fish on his car. So what does that say about Christians? And you know what? I've known people that were covered in tattoos. I don't know what that has to do with anything. Covered in tattoos, part of a biker gang, and they were some of the nicest, friendliest, most hospitable people in the world. So what does that tell you? That must mean that this whole religion thing and this whole God thing ain't that big a deal. And I ain't going to worry about it. And I apologize for that accent coming out. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> and so we become indifferent towards the things of God. And you know what? That stuff's true. And we do see people who claim to be Christ who don't represent Christ well. I know pastors who claim to be Christians and don't represent Christ well. 
And I've known some, some people who were not Christians and maybe hardcore atheists or New Agers or whatnot, and they were fairly nice people. But that doesn't mean that God is real or not real. And the God of Scripture is real. And His Word is true. And His way is right and good and righteous. And we have to give serious thought. Are we going to believe? Are we going to reject? Along with this, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that it's not Jesus and. In fact, when we make it Jesus plus something else, we've forgotten who Jesus is. If we make it Jesus plus my psychic, you've missed it. If you make it Jesus plus tarot cards, you've missed it. If you've made it Jesus plus good works, you've missed it. If you've made it Jesus plus being a Baptist, you've missed it. Is Jesus. And what, what, what one of the things that, that God is dealing with in this passage is to say, listen, you tried to make it Jesus plus ball. Jesus plus this. Jesus plus that. And they didn't know it was Jesus yet. But the Lord plus these things. And he says, no. You have to give your whole heart to me. God himself says, I will not share my glory. And when we, as followers of Jesus, think about what is being said here in Zephaniah today, we have to realize God is calling us not to indifference, not to spread, spread it out and make sure you've got all your bases covered, but what God is calling Judah to in this passage and God is calling us to today is to fully, wholly, passionately devote ourselves to the one true God, Yahweh, whom you can know through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said it this way, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. That's John 6.40. What can we learn from a little minor prophet like Zephaniah? The gospel's in here. And he is calling each and every person in this room to give yourself over to God. To do so through faith in Christ Jesus. To know who Jesus is. To believe in Him. And to find salvation and the forgiveness of sins through the gospel. We at Tunnel Hill believe that Jesus was indeed God the Son. That God put on flesh and lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death for your sins and for mine. And the Bible says that, that for God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him, believes in Jesus, will not perish but have everlasting life. It is the only way that we are saved. For there is salvation in no one else. 
There's no salvation in your good works. There's no salvation in tarot cards, keeping a law, any form of religiosity that's out there. There's salvation in Jesus. And I would plead with you today, do not, please, 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 do not be indifferent towards the free gift that God is offering you this day. But consider it. I would ask you to place your faith in Jesus and to follow Him alone. And if that is your desire today, I'd love to have a little bit more of a conversation with you about what it means to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. We're going to close our time this morning in prayer. As we close in prayer, we're afterwards we're going to sing one last hymn together. That is a hymn of invitation. And we are inviting you at that time to respond. Maybe you need to respond by giving your life to Jesus today. Maybe you need to respond by, by recognizing the things that you've allowed to creep into your worship of Jesus or maybe recognizing that, that there's been some, some indifference in your life towards the things of God and you just need to repent of those things. You can do that from your pew where you're standing right now or you're welcome to come up to these steps and lay that before the Lord. But however God is speaking to you today, we would invite you to respond. Let's pray. Our gracious God and King, Lord, we thank you so much for today. Lord, we praise you for the opportunity to to get into your word. And Lord, we praise you that even in uh, a a prophetic writing, a a writing of judgment, that God, you are making it abundantly clear that that you want a relationship with, with not just Judah, but with us. And that, God, that you wanted a relationship with us so much that you sent your one and only Son to to come and to, to die on the cross for our sins and raise from the grave three days later. And, Lord, that you don't want to share uh, your love and share this relationship that you offer freely with, with something that's not even real. But, God, that you are calling us and that you are warning us that that, that we need to give ourselves over to you. Lord, I pray that if there is a spirit of indifference on anyone in this room today, that you would begin to shatter that hold. And God, that you would begin to stir up in all of our hearts a a burning desire to follow you. And God, that we would not turn our backs on you. Lord, that we would not forget to go to you when, when we need your help and need your guidance but God, that we would be your people and that we would be devoted for, devoted to you. Lord, if there is anyone in this room that needs to begin that today by handing their life over you, by surrendering their lives to Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that today is that day. And God, that they would pass from death to life and that you would be glorified because of it. God, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.